This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hi, I'm Jen Swanson, church minister and career coach from British Columbia, Canada, and a contributor to the Carbon Almanac Network. Today, I'm delighted to be able to share this thought-provoking episode of Green Dreamer podcast with host Kamea Shane. Kamea always offers listeners something to dig into, and this was a particularly rich interview with author, educator, and Indigenous and land rights advocate Vanessa de Oliveira Andreotti, in which they talk about what it might mean for humanity to reach a level of maturity to be able to confront the multi-layered crisis we now face. Andreotti speaks with gentleness and an urgency that is both compelling and optimistic. She calls upon us to grow up and show up for our planet and for ourselves as human beings. This episode touches on all sorts of topics like dry toilets, our relationship with language, the supermarket society we have become conditioned to live in, and topics of radical tenderness and joy. I found this to be an in-depth and fascinating conversation between two people with both heart and passion for the planet and its future, and I hope you find it a rich one, too. Please enjoy this rebroadcast of Green Dreamer. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your direct support to be able to continue producing these episodes this entire year. So if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. We are continuing to offer our Green Dreamer planners made with recycled materials and created to support our holistic well-being, and that you can find in our fundraising shop at greendreamer.com shop. Finally, I wanted to share that I just launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which will be more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you'll be able to call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we first talked about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations or even bring multiple people in with contrasting views to help us further expand our learnings. For more information on that and to share your suggestions on what you would want to hear, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Vanessa Andreotti. That yearning stems from the understanding that that's something that's wrong. That you, if we can, you can use the word disease or greed or destruction that is happening around us. Like this affects our bodies. Part of our bodies, no. 
and that knowing may be numbed or deactivated, but it's there. And from that knowing, a yearning for a different form of existence emerges. Vanessa is a Brazilian educator and indigenous and land rights advocate. She is one of the founders of the Gesturing Toward Decolonial Futures Arts and Research Collective and part of the coordination team of the Last Warning Campaign. Her latest book, which we will explore today, is Hospicing Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and Implications for Social Activism. We begin here as Vanessa offers a glimpse into who and how she is showing up here today. I come from a mixed family from Brazil, where my dad, who has German ancestry, was uh, trying to make a stand against other members of his family, his brothers, who were involved in the agrarian expansion in Brazil in the, in the 50s and 60s, which meant that they were involved in, in indigenous genocide in Brazil. And he, he heard the stories and he wanted to do something about it. So he decided to marry an indigenous woman, a Guarani woman, who is my mom. But he also believed in the, in the superiority of the German culture over, over other cultures. And, and there was this, this desire to help others by improving the genetic stock. So part of my work, or maybe the focus of my work around the paradoxes of global and social change stems from having been born or even conceived in a paradoxical context where somebody wanted to change the world, but carried also a baggage, right? A cultural mm-hmm. baggage where these hierarchies were being reproduced and the, the social violence was also, was also being reproduced. So having been born in that context, I think I developed a sensitivity and a sensibility <laughs> towards mm-hmm. identifying the complexities in the paradoxes of social and global change. Thank you so much for sharing that. Your recently published book is titled Hospicing Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and Implications for Social Activism. And to get to the core, I want to ask a big but basic question, which is, what is this thing called modernity? So if our ancestor or future generations thousands of years later were to travel through a time machine to this moment, how would you portray a broad picture of modernity's characteristics and context, as well as its main ailments that need hospicing? Probably the easiest way to respond to this question is to say that modernity is a ubiquitous story of linear progress, development, evolution, and civilization that is all around us and that informs the ways we think, the ways we imagine things, the, the ways we hope, the ways we desire, and that also informs our neurobiology in, in many ways, where we, where we source pleasure, where we, what we're afraid of. So modernity is that water <laughs> for the fish that, that we're all swimming in. And a more extensive explanation would, would talk about, for example, um, using the metaphor of a house, like a house built on a planet, uh, planet Earth, and uh, the house right now exceeding the limits of the planet. So the foundation of the house is a foundation of separability, of the separation between humans and the land, and then the hierarchization of 
different animals in relationship to each other, those that can reason being at the top of the scale, but then also within humanity, the hierarchy between cultures and how they contribute to this single story of progress development, evolution and civilization. And then we would have two carrying walls, one carrying wall being the modern nation state, which we tend to think about as protecting its people, right? But the history of the modern nation state is to actually protect property. And um, the dispensation of rights and civil rights, labor rights, human rights, only occurring when there is interest convergence between the protection of property and the protection of people. The other carrying wall would be the carrying wall of enlightenment humanism, which is uh, one specific way of relating to knowledge where there is this um, attachment to universality, to uh, trying to describe the world in order to control it. And it's a kind of it's a kind of mode of relating to knowledge where other cultures would only be perceived as contributing if they have the same orientation, right? So whatever doesn't fit that wall is perceived as invalid to the upkeep of the house, to the upkeep of, of the house of modernity. And there have been different types of of roofs of this house. And, and the current roof is a roof of shareholder speculative uh, financial capitalism, which is one that is very harmful to what's happening actually within the house. It's a kind of a, a structurally damaged roof because it's focused on profit and it is largely anonymous. So we are all invested. Whoever uses a credit card or invests in pension funds is invested in the success of, of, of this roof, but the success of this roof happens at the expense of other people and of the planet. So the house itself is perceived of modernity, is perceived to be something that, for example, for some doesn't include everybody. And that's true, it doesn't. But the main problem is not a problem of exclusion. The problem is that the creation of the house and the upkeep of the house, the maintenance of the house happens at the expense of the planet and of, of, of people. So it is predicated on expropriation, destitution, dispossession, and genocide. Yeah, you touched on something that stood out to me because I've been thinking about this and I haven't had the proper words to articulate it per se, but this whole idea of rights. To me, I don't know if it's sort of indicative that there have been conflicting interests between, say, properties or corporations and people. And we've created conditions where people, a lot of people have been barred from the open and free access to our basic survival needs. And therefore, the concept of rights in of itself is even necessary. Part of the, the discussion, I think, is about if you, if you go back to the idea of the house, right? So that there is a, a, an understanding of, of basic needs that is based on the comforts or the, the, the minimal comforts that the house provides. And then the question would be who has access to the house, who has access to these minimal provisions, right? In terms of even if you think about ideas about sanitation, access to water, and so on and so forth. But if you think about it in the context 
of the house. Then the question would be, do we expand the house or um, do we restrict the house and, and create kind of other possibilities for, for people to live around the house? Because if they are like knocking on the door, wanting to, to enter the house, what's our relationship to them, right? But there's another way of, of thinking about it, which is the house itself is unsustainable. It's both created and maintained through social and ecological violence, and it's inherently unsustainable. And in that case, we need to be thinking about what has the house tried to eliminate in terms of possibilities of living, of understanding basic needs, understanding rights in a different way. So for example, if we're thinking about toilets, right? Uh, this is one of the things that I, I address in the, in the book. We have been led to think that flush toilets are the best solution to the problems of sanitation. And many people today are questioning that because uh, flush toilets are also extremely unsustainable <laughs> in many other layers, if you're thinking about it. They may be better in, in some, some contexts or in certain layers in terms of managing, managing disease, for example. But even that, depending on the context and depending on where where, where shit goes, right? It yeah. might not be, be the most appropriate solution. And dry toilets have, have had a bad rep in all this discussion in relationship to the house are now back in the discussion as uh, a much more sustainable solution that not only that helps us manage uh, human waste, but also helps us understand the whole dynamic metabolism that, that we're part of, right? So it's not just that they won't use water, but, but they, they also help us understand that there's no disconnect. There's no away. The shit doesn't go away. It goes somewhere. And this somewhere is also part of life. It's also part of what we have to, to consider as we consider different needs and, and different possibilities for, for existing in the planet. Yeah. So we're, we're really not just going for equal rights within this unsustainable house. We really have to question the foundations and how the entire house and way of living have been set up. And the synopsis of your book shares that it contains no quick fix plan for a better, brighter tomorrow and gives no ready-made answers. Instead, it presents us with a challenge to grow up, step up, and show up for ourselves, our communities, and the living earth, and to interrupt the modern behavior patterns that are killing the planet we're a part of. From what I interpreted of your message, our maturation calls on us to not just do differently and to not just know differently, but to be differently and to embody differently. So can you illuminate this further for us and share why perhaps learning new information and changing what we're doing might not be enough and that there is a deeper deprogramming and reconditioning that we need? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the learning, the self-actualization in, in learning more information can also be perceived to be a form of consumption which then goes back to a, a mode of consumption within the house of modernity or consumption as the mode to relate to the world. So we consume not only stuff, but also knowledge. We consume experiences, we consume critique. And this consumption uh, many times is not even digested. It's, it is consumption for consumption's sake so that we can feel better. I think that that pattern of consumption also indicates that we tend to use, for example, hope and future forecasting as a way to escape the difficulties of the present. So 
in our collective, in my research collective, we talk a lot about the metaphor or analogy of, of composting shit, right? We want to jump this process of shit composting to go to a more, a better world without actually doing the work that needs to be done, which might be what, not what you want to do, but that's the work that, that, that is necessary right now. So part of this maturity is actually shifting the ways that we've been conditioned to think about even what is the work by the house of modernity and within the house of modernity, right? And then, uh, and part of this mode of consumption is also to consume what's pleasurable, what will give us a sense of certainty, of control, of authority, of autonomy, and, and a sense of arbitration in the world that, that is also connected with a sense of righteousness and rightfulness. So this mode of, of relating to the world is antithetical or, or it's not conducive to us actually sitting with the proverbial shit that we have to compost together. Mm-hmm. And it's not just individual shit that we have to, to, to compost, but also collectively, the collective shit that comes from the, the bad decisions that have been made in the past that, that has, has brought us to the, the mess we are in. So uh, many people would want, for example, to think about hope and, and the future as, as a, a, a better space. But this better space depends on what we do today and the relationships we build and our capacity to compost this shit, which is not necessarily a pleasurable process. It is a process that requires stamina and that requires us to be able to sit with painful, difficult, uncomfortable things without relationships falling apart, without us feeling overwhelmed or immobilized or wanting to be rescued from discomfort. So if this is the first step, for me, it is a call for maturity, for us not turning our back to what is difficult and complicated and complex and and, and painful, right? So if we keep up just the the mode of uh, relating to knowledge as a form of of consumption and self-actualization, we might be missing out on the opportunity to really changing this mode of relationship to a mode where we can not only know differently, but exist differently together. And for that, we would need to tap capacities or reactivate capacities that have been exiled by the house of modernity capacities of, of knowing and capacities of being that are part of our neurobiology, are part of our bodies, but that have been, haven't been encouraged within the house that we are conditioned by. I know you're good friends with Dr. Bio Akomolafe, so I'm hearing a lot of common threads in what you're saying. And what I've been thinking about, especially being affirmed by my conversation with Bio, is that we're often giving too much weight to our words and language and human-created concepts because we create these concepts essentially based off of reality to try to make sense of the world. And yet a lot of us base our realities on these concepts rather than mm-hmm. remembering that it's the other way around, that we base our reductive concepts off of reality. And you've shared about our need to live beyond meaning as well. So what do you mean by this? And how might this shift the ways that we approach the whole idea of coming up with solutions to address our converging crises? Yeah, that's that's a very good question and a very uh, interesting discussion. So part of, of Enlightenment humanism, which is one of the, the walls 
of the house is this attempt to index the world into language. So we, we describe reality in order to be able to control it and to predict it. And, and that, to a certain extent, it works. But if our relationship with language is one of of indexing, we, we, we may miss out on the fact that reality is much more dynamic and, and exceeds what words can say and what words can do. So one of the ways to, to relate to language differently is to see words as entities of reality itself that do things in the world. So rather than if you, if you take that position, which is what I, I played with also in the book, if you take the position that, that language is an entity that, that works through you, that plays with you, but also goes beyond your intentions and in, in your own body in uttering these words, the focus of what you're doing shifts from describing something to moving something in the world. So the, the, the stories, for example, are trying to help things land in the world and, and, and sometimes difficult things to land, right, for people. So the the relationship with language and the relationship with knowledge shifts to one based on form, a specific form of aesthetics, to one based on the ethics of moving things and, and holding space for things, allowing things to, to synchronize and to, to work together. So it's a process that, that requires a lot of decentering of the self mm-hmm. and, and participating in the movement that is not just of your own, that is not about you. It is about what something can do. And I think that's how it would change the way people relate to social change. Yeah. And on a similar note, you say that our problems are not informational problems. They're basically deeper problems with our senses of being. And with that, I also wonder if in this quote-unquote fight to take down this current world order, we end up playing and mastering this game, doing mm-hmm. the same social ladder climbing for access, hungering for control with a righteousness to have everyone think the ways that we do in the solutions that we think are the answers, and then ultimately becoming that which we despise, wouldn't we just feed into the repetition of domination and destruction and recreating more monocultures? And so if we cannot shapeshift the ways that we show up as we create the conditions for something more beautiful to emerge, then we put ourselves at risk of furthering the same patterns, even if in the moment they may feel radical, like we're dismantling the status quo. Exactly. <laughs> yes, you said it beautifully. I think that that happens quite a lot if you're focused on on form, because also you're you're coming from the same desires, right? So we've been trying. It's not in the book. This is not in the book. This came out of something that happened through the book. But we're trying to to think about what is intelligible as as subjectivity and in terms of politics within the house of modernity. And we mapped five different things that make politics intelligible. So the first thing is exceptionalism. You have to, like, we're looking for a sense of being special. So exceptionalism would be like, if it's not this group that is going to, if it's not the right, it's the left. It's not the left, this is the right. If it's not white people, it's going to be BIPOC people. So that, that sense of exceptionalism, that there is a way that one group of people would be separate from 
the rest, right? Then there is the second thing, which is exaltedness. This group needs to be above and, and, and great in a specific way. And this greatness needs to be reinforced by constant repetition that, of how great this group or activist or party is. Then there is the externalization of culpability, which is this, this group is also innocent in some way. The empowerment of the ego and the expansion of entitlements are the two other things. So it's five E's, exceptionalism, exaltedness, externalization of culpability, empowerment of the ego, and expansion of entitlements. Now, a politics that is based on decentering ourselves and creating a politics based on uh, not communality, but commonality, and not commonality as in sameness, but as in sharing the commons, in sharing a world and being responsible for it, currently is basically unintelligible and unimaginable within modernity, although it, this politics still exists within some indigenous groups and other communities that are not interested in the same game. So how to exist differently would depend on us actually learning from the existing forms that are not working so that we can make <laughs> different mistakes and experiment with things that can actually interrupt some of these patterns, but we cannot interrupt something that we still idealize or that we, we, we still romanticize. And we need to figure out a way of getting out of the seesaw way of relating to the world again, where we either romanticize and idealize or we pathologize and vilify. We have to figure out a way of, of getting to zero where we can see it with the good, the bad, the ugly, the broken, in the messed up within ourselves and all around us within with the humanity within us rather than romanticizing and idealizing humanity i think that a more an approach more based on like this the colonial forms of sobriety maturity discernment and accountability would be about sitting with what what it is in the present and with the broken parts with the messed up parts with mm. the beautiful parts without trying to select what makes us feel better. And that's hard because most people won't want to do that. This may speak to the role of the different types of societal conditioning that we receive, but from your talk Beyond Inclusion, you share that different generations have had different ideas of inclusion based on the context in which they grew up. So, for example, earlier generations may view inclusion as assimilation, then later ones might view inclusion as representation, and then even later ones might view inclusion as basically requiring us to move beyond inclusion, requiring a systemic mm -hmm. overhaul. Can you elaborate more on this clash that you see between different generational ideals of what it means to better the lives of their people and perhaps how it leads us to understand things like aspirations and ideals as fluid and conditioned by broader cultures and contexts of the time? Yeah, and conditioned by what's happening historically around you as well. So we've been having these intergenerational conversations, both with indigenous communities as well, because this is that this is happening there, and and also with the mainstream, right? So looking at how, for example, for societies in the global north, you've, we've had a bubble of prosperity for people who were born just after the war that were presented with certain promises 
of progress, of incremental social mobility. And for them now in their 70s or uh, late 60s, it's very difficult to understand why people who are in their 20s or late teens want to to bring down monuments and statues and they're saying mm-hmm. like we, we need something very different right and the the generations in between having also been being asked to do this role of translation right and and mediating a little bit this conversation we've been talking a lot about the role of translation in not just translation of words but translation of feelings and cultural context and time and temporalities in this conversation. So thinking about um, Gen Z, the, the young people that are coming and saying we, we need decolonization, we need to go beyond inclusion, inclusion is not enough. They, they are looking at climate change, they are looking at the world and the, the amount of information they have and the hyper-complexity and volatility of what they're facing and saying the promises that were made to the generations before are not promises that can hold for that generation, right? They know that this incremental social mobility is not going to happen. I was talking to, to students yesterday who were saying it feels like they have to, to live their lives based much more on the present rather than making plans to have a family or to uh, buy a house, for example. So my daughter actually described it once when she was 16 as uh, watching watching the world is like watching a train wreck in slow motion. While and we, you don't want to be here to see what's going to happen next, there's also a desire within you to have the Gucci bag <laughs> that is creating the context where the, the train is being derailed, right? So... There is a generation that already, because of also technology, has more ability to deal with different layers of complexity. Talking to a generation that had never had to do that and that had an analog childhood and most of their lives they haven't had to deal with the tipping points that we're reaching right now. And, and that becomes very difficult for people to, to feel each other's pain. Right to to see what what uh, each generation is is going through, but for Gen Z too, there there is a sense that there is no adult in the room, and that they, with what they have, actually have more knowledge about technology and about different perspectives and maybe even about complexity that they can make that change. And the problem is that because there is no precedent for this eldership in this is is something that has been negatively affected. So how do we, because one of the functions of different generations would be to provide to each other some uh, sense of what works and what doesn't work, right? And in what context. And we not only have lost the time to do that to technology, but we have also lost the practice of documenting this in oral histories or even in written form, what we would like to to pass down, right? It has become much more a somewhat narcissistic exercise about ourselves rather than what we're going to be leaving to those that come after us. We have a project around that, which is uh, called the Pledge of Generations, 
where we invite people to pledge to work intergenerationally. So the pledge talks about what you would pledge to two generations before you and two generations after you and to the generations right before and after yours. And also to your generation, what would be the mode of relationship and the call to responsibility that you would want to have as a basis for for the conversations. And it has, has been very interesting to see how different generations respond to the Pledge of Generations itself. But we have seen that even for young people, like there is a sense, if there is a sense that there's no adult in the room, in the world at large, there is a yearning for for that connection to happen, right? Although there's a lot of anger also because they feel shortchanged by the other generations that have created a world uh, that is being inherited that is a mess. There's also the need for some stories to be passed down about, especially stories about what went wrong, right? So that they can learn from the mistakes already made and make only different mistakes in the future. Yeah, I really think that Understanding our generational differences in terms of the different contexts gets us to be less reactionary towards Mm -hmm. our broad intergenerational disagreements because we understand perhaps how different generations have come to think and be the ways that they are. And parallel to this, your book shares practices that guide us to interrupt our satisfaction with modern colonial desires that cause harm. So I wonder, given that our dominant culture has been severed from a lot of place-based ecological systems, if this is an invitation for us to realign our desires with what feels pleasurable for our greater bodies of our landscapes and planet. So in our project, we make a distinction between, and it's a strategic one, it's artificial in many ways, uh, between desires and yearnings. It was just a sense of separation that has been imposed. But I think we are deeply entangled still with the earth and with each other. And we have numbed our capacity, really, or deactivated the capacity to feel each other's pains. Not entirely, though. So that yearning stems from the understanding that there's something that's wrong. That you, if you can, you can use the, the word disease or greed or destruction that is happening around us, like this affects our bodies. Part of our bodies, no. And it may, that knowing may be numbed or deactivated, but it's there. And from that knowing, a yearning for a different form of existence emerges. But this yearning then in the supermarket society that we are conditioned to live in becomes associated with desires, right? Different kinds of desires. And again, pleasure is one thing. Joy is another, right? I think that that yearning is looking for the joy of being together, the joy of overcoming struggle together too. And pleasure is something different. Pleasure is much more associated, if you like, we would say it's, it's, it could be in our society associated with dopamine, which is this uh, sense of achievement of or getting somewhere or feeling superior to other people, the, the sense of exceptionalism as well, right? Or exaltedness. It's also associated with oxytocin, which is the sense of a transactional relationship where you have control and, and, and you, you, you are accepted on your terms rather than seeing yourself as, 
as something much bigger than what your identity can contain, for example, and, and, and engaging in a relationship for uh, growing together, growing old together, and, and having the joys of this process of maturity, including the mistakes and failures that are part of it, right? There's also endorphins and adrenaline that are mobilized in different ways, but the, the sense of righteousness is also a desire for that adrenaline, for feeling alive and doing something. So I think there are other possibilities for grounding this yearning for, for healing and for being together on a neurochemistry that has been exiled from modernity and that indigenous, indigenous peoples, as many indigenous groups, still have practices that remind us that another way of being, not only in conceptual terms, but in terms of our neurobiology, another way of being is possible. We are, we are much more than what we've be, we have become, right? We can uh, access, we could access <laughs> other forms of existence by, for example, uh, looking at the production and reabsorption of serotonin in our bodies and how different cultures have practices that, that work precisely with that, like the when we talk about ayahuasca, for example, or uh, mescaline or psilocybin, we would be looking at practices that try to open up different ways of experiencing the world with more responsibility, although they are consumed, especially in the West, in a very different way as personal self-care, personal healing. In communities that are committed to entanglement and the re responsibilities of entanglement, these medicines are not, these plant medicines are not used as a personal uh, practice, but as a collective practice of understanding and opening up these exiled capacities so that the, the earth can dream through you and, and the plants can tell you what's the next step for health and well being for your community and for the planet. So, I think the Western culture has focused a lot, as we talked about before, on concepts and, and, and articulated knowledge, but it is in the sense of, of being alive and part of something much wider and bigger than your own body and the, your own temporality that another way of being may be possible. But this cannot come if we don't interrupt in the in this culture, right, in the Western culture, the other desires for individuality, autonomy, authority, uh, arbitration, and control. It requires a surrender of a, a specific form of subjectivity so that something else can emerge in its place. And that's why we talk about hospicing. Hospicing modernity is not just hospicing modernity as it dies around us, but as it dies within ourselves, and that that happens through in, in many different ways. And but we feel it when the promises that modernity issues are no longer working, right? And you can see these promises as broken and then try to find somebody who can fix it, or you can see them as unrealistic and harmful from the outset, and then set your compass towards something else, something that is more sober, more mature, uh, more discerning, and, and more responsible, ultimately. That's so beautifully said. And 
I'm really looking forward to re-listening to this conversation so I can really feel everything that you said to my core. But to tie what we discussed here to a current happening, you've been working with the Last Warning campaign, which focuses Mm -hmm. on protecting the Amazon's indigenous peoples and forests in Brazil. So what are some lessons you think we can learn from this? And how does the work of maturing ourselves and our ways of being tie into this very material and more urgent work of supporting indigenous communities and landscapes facing threats of destruction right now? Right. So, um, yeah, the campaign is about the Brazilian government passing several bills and also a, a landmark uh, Supreme Court case that can cancel indigenous rights in order to open up the Amazon for predatory enterprises. And it is, it is, we call it an emergency, right? Because uh, the pain of the forest and the pain of the guardians of the forest who are part of the forest is generally invisibilized in the discussion. Uh, sometimes we have people trying to defend the Amazon as, as a place without people, but the Amazon is what the Amazon is today and performs the functions to the planets that, that it performs in relationship to carbon filtering and, and water cycles because the indigenous people were there and are part of the forest itself. So it is a tragedy, basically. Uh, but what I think the campaign is trying to do is prepare us to witness something extremely painful that is happening right now, but that can actually reactivate some of those capacities that we've been talking about if we, if we do it with attention in care, right? So how do we witness something this big happening? Because if the Amazon goes, climate change will accelerate exponentially because of its functions, right? Um, and the fact that we would be shooting our own foot, right? And, and creating another wave of genocide in Brazil in relationship to the indigenous peoples who are putting their lives on the line uh, to protect something that is important for all of us is something that it's, it's part of that turning towards what needs to be done rather than what we want to do, turning towards composting the shit. So I think the campaign itself is geared towards supporting the communities to be able to exist in this, uh, in this context and to advocate for the forest and for all of us. So we, we talk a lot about placing indigenous rights and indigenous people at the center of the climate agenda. But more than that, it's about learning to educationally relate to what is happening from a very different space. Even if we can't have like any immediate big outcome coming out of this because the government has the, the campaign that the, the government mounted against the indigenous people and the Amazon is really well thought through. It's extremely clever. So they have, for example, several bills going through Congress. And even if some of them don't pass, the same text is in the other bills. So they, they will find a way legally to be able to, to do what they want. And we will have to witness this, right? But this witnessing is something that moves something as well. And that may call us to a much greater level of responsibility. And that's, I think, what we, we hope for. And for listeners wanting to learn more about this, they can head to lastwarning.org. 
And the last thing I would love to touch on, because I was personally so moved by it, I didn't know how much I needed to read this until I did, but you co-authored a book called Radical Tenderness, which it's quite short, but so impactful to read that people can probably go through it within 10 to 20 minutes or so. But it's a part of the broader artistic pedagogy collaboration, Engage Disidentifications, and the collaboration attempts to translate post-representational modes of engagement into embodied experiments that reconfigure the connections between reason, affect, and relationality. Just to give an example to our listeners, in one reiteration, you say that radical tenderness is being critical and loving at the same time. My soul and being resonated really deeply, particularly with this one. And in another iteration, you share that radical tenderness is assisting with the birth of something new which is potentially but not necessarily wiser without suffocating it with projections, end quote. I just wanted to preface my final question with this to see where you might go with it. But as we wrap up, what might radical tenderness orient us towards as we ponder more about how we're going to grow up and show up for ourselves and our planet, even with all of the contradictions that modernity might force us to live with or confront? I think for me, what radical tenderness does or tries to do in the world is to try to get us to walk this tightrope between naive hope and hopelessness, which are two traps that we we often fall into if we're involved in in social activism. In this walk, in this tightrope, you have to walk with a bar of the weight, right, of uh, both rational rigor, but it's not just one type of rationality, but it, there's, there's the reasoning it needs to be rigorous, but the relationality also needs to be rigorous. And in this walk, we talk about four ages, which is honesty, which is the ability to sit with everything. Then there's humility, the ability to decenter yourself, hyper self-reflexivity, which is about tracing where things come from, where they're going to, and how also we are complicit in harm and humor, because in order to be able to to carry the weight of what we have to do together, we need a light container. And communities of struggle have shown us over and over and over again that humor, even in its neurobiological um, relief, they, they really help us carry each other in a good way. It has to be the right kind of humor. It's not any humor, <laughs> but laughter is part of the struggle. And if we, if, we, if we don't have that relief, we end up burning out. Uh, so we've learned that probably the, the hard way because we have burned out in, in the collective. Many people have burned out, uh, especially BIVOC people have burned out so many times that we had to have this lesson hammered to us that it's important to look at the miracles. It's important to look at the, the small things. It's important to to laugh at ourselves and to uh, to laugh together. In my room there is a ghost She sleeps beside me in the morning I watch her dress and brush her hair Then she runs to
what has been an impactful publication you follow or a book that you've read? So Finding the Mother Tree is one a book that I'm, I'm reading at the moment and it's making me think about myself in relation to the forest that is across the road in a very different way. Yeah, that's what I can think about at the moment. It's funny. Yeah. What are some personal mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with to stay grounded? The compass of uh, decolonial forms of sobriety, maturity, discernment, and accountability. So the idea of not acting from compulsion or addictions and figuring out what's happening on my personal bus of people yeah. who's, who's driving and what the passengers are doing. Mm. And finally, what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? Working in a collective is one of the most rewarding things, I think, that I found and in, in, in what, what helps us not do this work in, in isolation, but also the communities, the practices of the communities and the support that we have from the indigenous communities we work with in Brazil and in Canada, always offering ceremonies and medicines and practices that that help us not have our vitality depleted. I think that's very important. Well, Green Dreamer, again, Vanessa's book is Hospicing Modernity. And to learn more and stay updated on her work, you can head to decolonialfutures.net. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. It's been an honor to have you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? So if we start from the premise that our dreams have been colonized, our unconscious is colonized, paying attention to the decolonization of the unconscious and to neuro-decolonization so that we can allow the earth to, to dream through us, which requires this decenterment of, of, of the self, right? So green dreamers can mean a, a number of different things, but one of them would be allowing the earth to dream through us. And the work necessary to get to that point could be framed as a decolonization of our unconscious. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also greatly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Desmond White's Brown Leaves. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the Green Dreamer podcast. We'd like to thank Kamea Shane, host of the Green Dreamer podcast, for letting us share this episode with you. Today's episode was produced by Inma J. Lopez, alongside Jen Swanson, Judy Perella, and Maynon Duran. Special thanks to Jen Swanson for sharing this episode with us. Our editor is Tanya Marion, 
and our founding producer is Jennifer Meyer-Schua. To listen to other shows in the network, like Carbon Sessions, where everyday people have conversations about carbon, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts.